much ado about the AQ episode 4 Edward the sheer audacity of these people Hello and welcome back to Much Ado About the AQ, the occasional podcast wherein um, the short bald one, uh, <laughs> that's me, and the not short nor bald one, uh, Dr Taylor, speak about the authorship question of Shakespeare. My name's Joe Payne, layman to the expert, expert to the layman, and I am an English teacher. Um, I've not actually been reading anything for a little while because I've been working on a uh, an algorithm um, that essentially measures syllable patterns within iambic pentameter and within verse um specifically focusing on the uh early modern english so i'm trying to do something with computers that is a little bit fancy in order to get a little bit more uh, evidence of who may or may not have written the works of shakespeare um but that's that's what i've been doing instead of actually reading books like a normal person um i i've been reading books but not like a normal person, because I don't mm. read normal person books. Um, so this is kind of like a, a, a shout-out to a book, as it were, or to a series of books. So it's the Oxfordian, uh, and this is kind of, a, I think it's like an annual publication by the Oxford community, and it's the best of the best of their research. And for no particular reason, I, I started with Oxfordian 24, which I think is the most recent. Cool. And I posted a few of those to my Twitter stream, uh, Twitter handle coming in due course. Um, uh, the the points I'm going to raise today are about the Earl of Oxford come from a book by Geoffrey Eyre, which I have read. Uh, and then at the minute, just because sometimes we in the AQ community are accused of, I don't know, what, well, lots of things apparently, yeah. child abuse. Oh yeah, of course. Torture, conspiracy. I'll, I'll take conspiracy I'll because take conspiracy. it is a literal conspiracy. It is, it is. Um, but defending one, you know. And I, I've essentially been called the, uh, the the Socrates of Canterbury this week for perverting the youth. But um, more about that later. That'll be one of my shout-outs. Yeah. Um, anyway, to be to, to be more fair and balanced and nuanced, I've been reading Professor James Shapiro's book, Contested Will, uh, 2012. Uh, I'm not very far into it. I'm only in, in Chapter 1. So far, I'm finding it very uh, edifying and interesting indeed. Oh, fantastic. So, um, yeah, we, we do look at both sides. We're not just... We've said it before. We're not just here to espouse one uh, viewpoint. We're, we're looking at the AQ. Admittedly, we're, we're both, I think, Oxfordians. Mm-hmm. But we're not here to say, you should believe the other Oxford wrote Shakespeare's plays or that you shouldn't believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare's plays. We're just trying to make you think, yeah. um, despite what people on Twitter may or may not believe. So um, I'll do my shout-outs for this week. A big thank you to those people that have been emailing in. Much ado about the AQ at gmail.com. Um, but we've had emails from Chris Cassin, um, who's brought up some really interesting things on Marlow that I'm going to look into and we'll mention later. Uh, to Ron Destro, uh, someone called Tamara, or possibly Tamara, depending on if, whether she's American or not. Um, massive thanks for getting in touch. Please do continue to do so. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, yeah, and I've, um, I'm now active on Twitter. Okay, so in the uh, trap. Yeah, I mean, as as you anybody who knows me knows that me being on a social media platform was doomed, and uh, yes, I've already attracted my fair share of uh, strat fraudians. Um, but what is my Twitter handle, uh, Joe? Because I can't remember it. Uh, you said you looking my, it up. Mine first, whilst I'm looking it up. Mine is at Gun Chicken. Um, don't ask. But uh, I'm always open for reasonable comments and people who don't particularly want to argue about anything because. I don't have time for that. My 
life is busy enough without arguing with people on the internet, um, I'll just argue with people via podcast form, yeah. which is much more reasonable. Um, he is AQ underscore Anon, A-N-O-N, 76486. Well, as I, as I understand it, if you went to Twitter and typed in AQ underscore Anon, you'll probably get to me that way. Yeah, it's it's a pun on QAnon if you're not yeah. if you're not with us. And and on that, just to go a, a very strange tangent, but hey, why not? That's what we do. Um, yeah, I was asked. I'm, I'm assuming, unironically, by somebody called Smiley uh, on Twitter. Hi, Smiley, you're a barrel of fun, mate. Um, <laughs> he, I'm the short bald one. He's the short bald one. Yeah, we had a bit of flat this week from uh, from some not so level-headed, not so. Um, Fair-minded, but definitely supercilious and, and rather annoying uh, Stratfordians. Anyway, um, yeah, he, he asked me, you know, did you call yourself AQAnon based on the lunatic conspiracy theory, yada, yada? And I said, yes. There you go. <laughs> so that's the quality of debate I've been uh, having this week. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to Daniel at Alacrates. That's A-L-A-C-R-A-T-E-S. Um, also, I'd like to give a shout-out to Oxford. Um, whoever's behind the channel, the channel itself, because unlike the smiley chap, um, whoever Oxford is, sir, madam, um, you've com- comported yourself with the utmost dignity. You, you, you definitely seem to be, uh, quite evidently are, an intellectual and um, deeply committed to your Stratfordianism, and, and good for you. Um, unlike others, I'm not out to deconvert. Um, but you sent me lots of really interesting links, uh, very edifying material, so thank you very much for your uh, continued uh, messaging. I'd also like to give a shout out to Maud May at Bearing Maud, B A R I N G M A U D. She's a great follower. Uh, a guy called Ant Lord Dean. Uh, Ant I, is a legend. Yeah. Ant is a legend. Can, can I read his Twitter description out? Go for it. Okay, it says Bin's out on a Monday night. I'm your kind of guy. Declared to be really pleasant by a piss doctor. I used to write music. Prolific procrastinator. Uh, we salute you, Ant. You are yes. funny. Uh, and then, uh, very quickly, three of the channels, Bacon is Shakespeare, Who Will Believe My Verse, and, of course, the DeVere Society. And they're now promoting our wares. Oh, so thank you, Mr. Moore. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ray Just to be clear, we do not have any wares. <laughs> <laughs> no. Future merch, though, we've, we've worked this one out. It will be a pair, it will be a, a yellow anorak with AQ written on it. Yes. That's, that'll be it. So that you can look like a reasonable member of the AQ community. Yep. You can have a bright yellow anorak with AQ just on it. Totally sane. Yeah, but the AQ won't be where you'd expect it to be. Oh, no. <laughs> There'll be an A on the, on the front and a Q on the head. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, a competition. Yes. All right. Uh, we're running a competition. All we want you to do is to share the podcast in some way and, uh, and tag one of us or both of us in when you share it um, and we'll draw a winner with the next episode. Uh, you can win a copy of The Looney, J. Thomas Looney's seminal work, uh, Uncovering Shakespeare. Is that what it's called? Shakespeare Identified. Shakespeare Identified. Apparently, yeah. Okay. He might have uncovered him as well. Well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, and what um, but um, yeah, you, you can win a copy of that book if you want us to. We'll sign it, but oh, I completely understand why you wouldn't. Yeah, we, and why we've got straight to eBay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we up to eBay bidder if you like. I could um, sign it E Oxenford if that would help. Yeah, um, just let us know when, when you do the tweet. Um, and if, if you don't want us to sign it, you'll get it straight from Amazon because it's easier that way. Send, send your details. Yeah, send over um, when, if and when you enter. But mm. yes, I'm at God of Chicken. Uh, on Twitter, and that's probably the easiest place because I'll check it and I won't get a load of abuse, hopefully, from Stratfordians. Yeah. So, on to today's episode about Edward de Vere, and um, this is probably just going to be the beginning <laughs> of 
talking about De Vere, he's yeah. um, he's probably the biggest figure at the moment in the uh, in the all-tip question. He's the the current favourite. So um, where are we going to start? Well, I wanted to start in 1593. It's a good place to start because that would unite or dovetail uh, this podcast to the previous one on Marlowe. Um, because if you recall, dear listener, um, last last instalment, I was saying that in 1593, 30th of May, Marlowe is allegedly killed in, insert reason here, in Deptford. Um, the Hoffman theory is he survived, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's also the first year that William Shakespeare's name appeared in print. No juvenilia, uh, no manuscripts, uh, no formative years. Just suddenly, boom, there it is, Venus and Adonis, 1593. Well, actually, in 1593, the Earl of Oxford stopped producing uh, plays and poems of court. Uh, now, just a, just a point on that, because I've, I've made comments online about um, Oxford attending Oxford and Cambridge universities, and I was told off, well, he didn't attend them. He got honorary degrees. Okay, I'm very sorry, and I should have read the wiki entry. But the fact is that your boy from the Midlands didn't get honorary degrees. And I was also told that um, De Vere didn't study law at Gray's Inn. Well, I'm pretty damn sure he did. Uh, but again, um, even if he was just hanging out there, putting on entertainments, that gives him, I think, a better claim to some kind of rudimentary education or better than it does the Midlands guy. So uh, 1593, yeah, you, you, you get uh, Edward Oxenford no longer producing plays in that mm. name. He disappears from the literary record, and hey-ho, that's the year Shakespeare's born. So um, that's the beginning of the Oxford um, contention or narrative or thesis. Mm. Um, obviously, this, this kind of um, begins, uh, or the kind of the modern analysis of Oxford um, as a possible candidate begins with J. Thomas Looney's Shakespeare Identified. But the points I'm going to go through here, and I've, I've literally got a list of points, yeah. which is a bit sad and anoraki, but... Bear with me. Uh, these points come from a book called The Case for Edward de Vere's Shakespeare by Geoffrey Eyre, as in Jane Eyre, Eyre, which I found to be a really good book, very informative. And I think the first thing I'd say, the, the, the really simple thing is this. Marlowians make a case for Marlowe based on textual parallelisms, mm. so echoes and allusions and repeated lines. The Oxford community can't do that because there are no extant... Um, literary uh, productions fr from Oxford. We have some of his poetry, but I think that's uh, contested. Uh, certainly no plays, even though Francis Mears and other people definitely said... It's known that he did write plays. He, uh, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, although, again, on, online this week I was told, no, we don't know, know that. But Henry Peacham, in The Complete English Gentleman, published in 1622, um, lists um, a, a load of English poets, and the list has at the top Edward Earl of Oxford, and there's no reference to Shakespeare. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly happy he wrote plays and poetry. Now, yeah. whether or not that includes Hamlet, Lear and the Sonnets, that's up to you. But uh, yeah, there it is. So yeah, Marlowe is all, all, all about text and yeah. uh, De Vere's all about biography. Mm. And what I've heard um, the opposite side say is, well, that, that's just circumstantial evidence. So I did a rudimentary, hey, wiki, not, what do you do when you're talking to your phone and ask it questions? Not Alexa, what's it called? Siri. Siri, that thing. Yeah. I basically said... What is English common law? I knew, but I just wanted to know I knew the right thing. Well, okay, these, these are the statutes and the laws that are kind of uh, based on uh, historical precedent and which form the basis for more, for two-thirds of the planet, for colonial reasons. 
Um, and then I, I asked it as a follow-up, is circumstantial evidence admissible in a court of your, law? Well, of course it is. You can be convicted yeah. of murder on circumstantial evidence. So I'm not having any of this, it's just circumstantial evidence tosh. Um, but I've been jabbering on for four minutes already, so I mean, do you want to interject before I do my list? No, no, I mean, all I wanted to add really was that circumstantial evidence is all we've got for Shaq Sparrow as well. It's, Absolutely. It's, the fact that he shares a name, as I've said before, means that I've scored nine goals for Ipswich mm-hmm. uh, in a Division One fixture. And in I'm a triathlete and an adult entertainer. <laughs> well, we don't get into what you go up to the weekend. Well, I live in Sandwich. Yeah, that's perfectly normal for Sandwich. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, we it, circumstantial evidence, to say it is, yes, it's true, but that the same thing can be levelled the other way. Mm. Um, and, in fact, there's less circumstantial evidence for Shaxburg. Though there's no formal education. My favourite argument this week, I'm, I'm totally omitting to follow the script here, but my favourite argument on Twitter about the uh, educational status of Mr William Shaxburg, gent, was a presuppositionalist argument. And, and I've actually said online, this is like debating William Lane Craig who begins with the basic premise that theism is true and the resurrection was real, and you have to debunk him. So the argument went like this. Given that Hemmings and Condell in the first folio of 1623 say, my friend Shakespeare, blah, 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 wrote Lear, we know he must have had a formal education, therefore we know Shakespeare had a formal education. Over to you, AQ lot. And I was thinking, ooh, this is like listening to William Lane Craig. You know, word salad, challenge... And then you feel you're on the back foot. No, I'm sorry. There's no educational record for the man from Stratford. There isn't. It's, it's self-proof in the same way as the, many Christian scholars will argue the Bible proves the Bible. Mm. It's, it's self-referential. This text that is claimed to be, that claims that Shakespeare wrote the plays, therefore claims that Shakespeare wrote the plays, mm. um, or Shakespeare, or mm. whoever it is you want to go with, despite the differences in spelling. Mm. Um Again, and I want to I want to make it completely clear once again because some people seem to be getting confused. Bless them. We're not here to we're not here to tell you Shakespeare didn't write the plays and the man from Stratford didn't. We just want to give you the evidence on the other side because it doesn't get out there enough um, for people to understand. So please don't think we're here to tell you this man wrote the plays. This man wrote the plays. We just we've just got evidence that other people that won't tell you. And obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Yeah. Uh, an accumulation of evidence might lead you to believe X. And if you were a judge and a jury, that would be proof. This isn't a trial, but it has similarities to it. It has and come to trial before. Oh, it has? There's yeah. supre- some Supreme Court justices? Yes, in, in the US, in Massachusetts, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and they, Massachusetts. they ruled in favour of... The, they ruled there was reasonable doubt. Yeah, that was it. The Shaxburg. Yeah, so they, kind of get, they gave it to the, the Stratford guy, but said there was still reasonable doubt to... Doubt. Yeah, they, they couldn't under in a court of law they could not say that it was proven that Shakespeare had written the plays. There you go. So and and they're not wearing online conspiracy theorists. No, this is a judge looking at evidence. In I think Antonin Scalia, uh, later the Supreme Court, he was an Oxfordian, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I think it's on the Devere Society website, which is great. You should all go to the Devere Society website. Can I just shout out to the Devere Society because I, I became a member. And that's because I also received some more online abuse this week. Uh, sorry, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, and I posted it to my feed, but then took it down because I thought better of it. But basically, I was told to F off. Uh, I was full of BS. Uh, and, and this from somebody, again, who, who was a sentient, adult, rational human being and UK taxpayer. And I said, uh, in response to that, I went to the Devere Society and got an uh, annual membership. So yeah. there you go. That, that's what happens when you abuse people like me. From the north. Okay. 
We're funny and, buggers. And and us lads from the uh, from East London as well. We're very us. Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't come at us with your waspish, donish, you know, pince-nez nonsense. That that don't work. Yeah. If you want right. to give us some evidence and argue and debate, fine. Mm. We will happily engage with you. As soon as yeah. you just start getting personal or start yeah. arguing um, with you know out, outside of the realms of. Polite Edmonton, discourse. Polite discourse. Yeah. Then you're just going to annoy us, and we're going to do something that would annoy you, but you can't control. Yeah. Like well, make more podcasts. Yeah. This will happen exponentially. We did get some good evidence from Oxford. I, I know he might. Well, he won't be listening because he hates me. But assuming he were, he would think. I got a minute. I gave you a 17 prima facie reasons why Shakespeare was. Yeah, I read it, and it was it was compelling. And I actually congratulated you on your scholarship. It was um, superb. But we're not scholars of the AQ. Um, you know, Joe's about to undertake a PhD study in um, what could we call it AQ adjacent things. Yeah. And my PhD is in post-war British poetry, so we're a couple of provincial school teachers yeah. with an interest in a topic that seems to get so many people upset. And again, if you're listening, Elizabeth Winkler, uh, we loved your book. Yeah. We've got two copies in the school library. You can send the commission through to us anytime you want. Yeah. Um, you know, upwards of five dollars is good. Um, but we know all the flat that you've had online because yep. I've been reading it. I can't believe the way they've gone after oh, you. Yeah. I mean, how dare you? How dare you? Yes, how dare you? Greta boys, how dare you? How dare you have an opinion and be a woman? <laughs> yeah, stop uh, it. Stop doing bad uh, things. Imagine getting angry about who wrote Shakespeare. Imagine, <laughs> imagine that being your life and getting really angry about it's, it. It is pathetic. And I've yeah. found so many people to get their knickknocks in a bunch about this. And I, I, it just makes me want to do more. Yeah. I, I just I just ignore it. I click block, and then I go back to blaming my kids. Like a, like a normal person. I, I can't not tackle people. I, I yeah. I should block more. But anyway, Musk is getting rid of the block function, so uh, no, he's not allowed. It's is illegal. He? Oh, is it? Yeah, so I can still block people. It is illegal for him to remove the block function. Oh, oh well. I guess I'll wind, wind people up and then block Sorry, them. Sorry, haters. We will continue to block you. Yeah. Anyway, shall I get into all this? Let's, let's do some Devere. Okay. So biographical uh, evidence that suggests Devere was. Um, Shakespeare. Okay. Hamlet. Now, Looney mm. does um, a huge analysis of Hamlet. So let's just begin there. Quoting from Air here, page 36. Um, for William Cecil and daughter Anne, read Polonius and daughter Ophelia, with Edward de Vere as the permanently frustrated and embittered Hamlet railing against the establishment. His revenge came later, imprint, with Lord Burley skewered on stage for all time as the senile windbag Polonius. So, Joe and I teach Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we read the Arden edition. Don't worry, we're not using the... Uh, and there is one. There's, a, there's an Oxford edition version yeah. of Hamlet. We're not using that. We're not misleading or perverting the youth of Athens or Canterbury. Um, and in the footnotes to my edition, it, it makes it perfectly plain that Polonius is William Cecil Lord Burley. Yeah. And his name in the original quarter of Hamlet was Carambus. And that's a play on Burley's own motto. Um, Edward de Vere's father-in-law was William Cecil Lord Burley whom did Edward de Vere marry? He married William Cecil's daughter Anne they had a terribly strained relationship mm-hmm. uh, there was a child that Oxford su- suggested or um, suspected sorry wasn't his he spent a good year two three years away from, from Anne they had to be reconciled that's what goes on in Hamlet with yeah. Polonius Ophelia and, and Hamlet uh, and as I'll get on to, you know, Laertes is, is uh, Thomas Cecil, William Cecil's son. So, yeah, there you go. There's my opener for, for 10, and I've got 29 more. 
So it's, just, it's quite compelling. This, I, mean, yeah, I, I want to latch on to one thing you said there, yeah, just, go, go, just go. to be clear, and it's to do with us more than it's to do with the AQ. Yeah. We do not, when, in terms of the AQ, when we're teaching Hamlet, we, we just teach it the, the kind of the regulation way for the most part. We just, um, we may mention in passing <laughs> something AQ related, but yeah, yeah. All, all of the context we teach for Hamlet is the established yeah. law of Shakespeare and the mm-hmm. man from Stratford and so on. And we, yeah. we avoid... Um, all of our conspiracy stuff when we're actually teaching it because these kids have got A-levels to do. So please don't be afeared for the students that we teach. Having said which, um, if we were to introduce more AQ-related content, that would be historical literary context, AO3. Mm. Uh, Joe here works for Edexcel. I hope he doesn't mind me saying. Yep. He marks for them. Probably not for long now. Probably not for long. Um, but I, you know, our, our parents at this school um, w- would either you know sigh, raise their eyebrows, and or... Uh, I think, be wholly supportive of, of, of that avenue into the text. Um, it's not child abuse to invite a child to think differently. No. Um, I mean, maybe if Labour are getting to power next year, it will be made a crime, but at the present moment it isn't. That was just a joke, obviously. Um, <laughs> love, love you, Keir. Um, but yeah, seriously, if I were teaching that, what's anyone going to do about it? Yeah. Realistically, it's well, not immoral, it's not improper. People can call me a raving lunatic, but you know they've been saying that for years anyway. So okay. Yeah, I can confirm this is true. Absolutely right. Okay. I mean, that's that's on my job title. Okay. Point two. Okay, right. Point two. Why was Oxford embittered? Well, all of his estates. Now he was a ward of court. That that backtrack. Why was he a ward of court? Well, Edward de Vere's father, the sixteenth Earl, who like Edward de Vere was the patron of an acting troupe, the Lord Oxford's men. Uh, he died when Oxford was 12, and um, Oxford and his father were very close. And I know that's a very sensitive topic, but you know, a number of people lose dads, and um, mm. it, it, it's something they, they, they take time to um, process. Yeah. Um, so what we know of Oxford and his dad is that he was completely um, you know, shattered by, by this bereavement, by this loss. Well, Hamlet is a play about lost dads. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lear's a play about dads and daughters. Hamlet's about dead dads. Okay, uh, you know, old Fortin Brass, old Hamlet, um, and Polonius, I guess. Um, and and anyway, that made um, the Earl of Oxford a ward of court. So he was taken to live at the house of William Cecil uh, on the Strand in London. And that that move was managed by Elizabeth the First. Okay, because I think the Earl of Oxford is the second oldest aristocratic family. In England, okay, that goes all the way back to William and Doomsday. Anyway, so until he was 21, his estates were managed by the Crown, and obviously that means Cecil because he was a Lord Secretary or a a senior figure in Elizabeth's cabinet, uh, Privy Council. Uh, Cecil was his guardian, so Oxford never, this is quoting air, never entirely freed himself from the debts incurred through his nine years as a ward, and money troubles pursued him until the end of his life. Hamlet says he's 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 a peasant. Mm. Um, and I know you might mean it ironically, but it depends how you look at it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of his complaints. And he's also disinherited, isn't he, Hamlet? Yeah. This is the other thing to remember. Um, he, he wanted to be uh, king, but the election didn't light on him. You know, Claudius got the election because that's how the Danish court worked. So there's another point. That's why Oxford forward slash Hamlet is, is upset. Yeah, well, makes sense. I mean, there, there's an argument. There is a suggestion, isn't there, that... Um, the absent mother was, in fact, Elizabeth herself. Yeah, now, this is something else that's hit me online. I've been, I've been told I'm a Prince Tudor theorist, and I was thinking, <laughs> well, apart from that being a really good indie band name, because I collect those, um, it, it's... Um, can I swear on your podcast? It's, it's our podcast. We already have. All right. It's bullshit, OK? Yeah. 
Well, it's just kiddie winks might listen. So when I say bullshit, just go beep, beep. Okay, bullshit. Um, I, I, the Prince Tudor theory is a great idea, but that's all it is. And, and apparently it's meant to define the Oxford community. I really don't think the Oxford community works that way, no. guys. That there's far more consensus among Stratfordians. Um, so some Oxford people believe that um, Elizabeth was the mother of uh, Edward de Vere, making him next in line to the throne. Um, he did used to sign his name E with, um, I think it was eight slashes, because he would be Edward the... Oh, no, with seven slashes, sorry, because he would be Edward the seventh if he became yeah. king. Obviously, Henry VIII's son was Edward the sixth, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that's just a theory. The other theory, then, is that... Um, but, but kind of added on to that uh, with de Vere as Elizabeth's son later on they have a sexual relationship and produces their heir Henry Risley the Earl of Southampton now that would explain the incest theme between Hamlet and Gertrude in the play mm. but uh, that's not going from known historical data to the play and then back that is you know wild theory and, and hypothesising it's speculation. It's that wonderful, um, almost soap opera-esque mm. uh, attributes that, that people love to apply to royal courts throughout history. Yeah. And because Elizabeth never married, etc., etc. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's easier to read the sonnets, for example, to, they are apparently addressed to the young girl of Southampton, Henry Risley. Um, it, it's better to read those as, as kind of um, advice and tips from the man who would be uh, the other Southampton's father-in-law, because of course the other Southampton was meant to marry Edward de Vere's daughter, and that's why the procreation sonnets, and there are seventeen, that's why they're all addressed to him, saying, "Hey, get with this girl and bonk her and make little people." I mean, it's fairly basic stuff. It's a bit pagan, uh, but that's why I like it. It's earthy. Anyway, um, okay. Now, point number three. Now there are thirty of these, so th- th- this, there's no way we're doing this in. Two instalments, are we? Yeah. No, we're, no. we're <laughs> nearly at the end of the first one. <laughs> Let's try and get to five. Okay, so De Vere was a student on the Hamlet model. Uh, now, I am told by air that he was educated at Cambridge, Queen's College, 1558 to 9, and at Inn in London in law. So uh, I would like Oxford maybe to get in touch if he's listening and just explain why, although the um, degrees conferred upon him by Elizabeth on a progress were ceremonial or honorific um does that mean he was not educated in any you know normal sense and if you can prove he wasn't that's fine with me i just thought let's have some clarity anyway he was also educated and this is more significant i mean elizabeth the first didn't go to oxford or cambridge but she could speak latin french she composed music so what was an education in renaissance england well it was private education so um de vere was educated in the homes quoting air page 21 of his two mentors, Thomas Smith and William Cecil. He was competent in Latin and French. He had seen service with the military, something related to the the, uh, military campaign in the north of England and the Armada, I believe, Um, and would soon come into his inheritance and take his seat in the House of Lords. So he was courtly, educated, intellectual, able to fence, legally trained, and a Latinist. Does that sound like anybody in Hamlet? Does it sound like a guy who was a Midlands malt merchant? No, and I'm fed up with people yeah. telling me about Occam's sodding razor. If you get Occam's big boy razor out, the first person you'd hack off would be an unlettered provincial yeah. malt dealer from Warwickshire. Right, sorry again. Occam's razor applies when you have all of the evidence yes. available. 
And people who apply Occam's razor to the AQ essentially are ignoring the vast majority of the evidence yeah. when they do so. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and then if you do start hacking, you might find that you're left with things that you didn't expect. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like Holmes t- telling Watson, you see but you do not observe. Yeah. And so forth. I mean, if you come at this with a completely open mind, you probably won't get the outcome you expected. <clears throat> but such is the nature of objective truth, should that exist. And that's why I'm reading the Shapiro, by the way, because I want to be exposed to the best counter-arguments. And just again, I think Joe would echo this. When we became English teachers, when we were at uni, we were just straight down the middle Stratfordians. We probably didn't know it. I, I, well, yeah, we were, I certainly wasn't aware of an alternative question, per no. se, no. when I was reading a fellow at university. No. Uh, no idea. And it's only having looked at the evidence that I've come down on the side. Yeah. And there's some brilliant stuff about Amelia Bassano... Um, in Elizabeth Winkler's book, um, uh, tying you know knowledge of Venice and music and, and, and Shakespeare's obvious knowledge of music uh, to Amelia Bassano and her family who were court musicians for Henry VIII and Elizabeth. So <clears throat> again, oh, it's just circumstantial evidence. Yes, but we don't know that Shakespeare owned a musical instrument. It's not in the will. Yeah. Uh, I'm just sorry. There are too many lacunae, too many gaps. I've and... been poring over the will recently, um, yeah. trying to translate it into modern English. And... Yeah. There, there are so many gaps in that will yeah. compared to other wills of the time. Yeah. Other wills from people in Stratford who were mm. presumably compiled by the same scribe, mm-hmm. um, which include things like books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was told that most people wouldn't will books. Uh, odd that, because um, <laughs> there's another chap who was mentioned to me in an email uh, who was one of, he was one of the people that um, Shakespeare sued for money, mm. and uh, he certainly owns the books. So Richard Field or something. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, yeah, he certainly owned some books, and yeah. he did leave them in his will. Yeah. I mean, if you had a large leather-bound, therefore handmade, an animal died to make this copy of Chaucer or the Bible or the Psalms, you're damn right you'd will it. Remember, Shakespeare wills his second-best bed to his wife. I imagine the second-best bed would have been lower in value to a leather-bound folio Bible. And this was a deeply Christian culture, so people would have had that text at home. Um, but you know, um, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. We yeah. will be told. So fine, yeah. But the Stratford lot do also say that there would have been a, an appendix or a codicil or God knows what they call it um, to the will, and that would have contained the books. And they say this about the education as well. Well, he would have done this, but but again, this is this is not arguing from known fact. It's mm. surmising that things that are not there have been lost. How do you know they ever existed in order to have been lost? This is not a good way to argue. Argue from what we do know. And what we do know is we don't know a lot about yeah. the Bolt guy. And I know that when the, uh, when the world was found, it was kind of devastating for Stratfordians that it yeah. seemed to prove them wrong. Well, I've just got to that bit in the, in the Shapiro book, and the will wasn't found until the 1700s. Um, and it was so disappointing that after that, a husband and, sorry, a father and son team whose surname was Ireland, I've forgotten what their first names were, but these, the, 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 these guys were so kind of frustrated and had bought into the Stratford mythology to such an extent that they forged a load of documents mm. and original manuscripts of Lear. Of course, we had Shakespeare's bloody diary. Yeah. And there was a letter from Elizabeth telling Will to come round my place and put a, an amusement on for a shindig with me and the Earl of Leicester, eh, what? And it's <laughs> like, why did anybody buy that? Yeah, but people were queuing up, weren't they, to come and see them? Oh, they loved it. They, they, they made a tourist attraction. They actually did charge it money. Still is. It still is, exactly. Like, if, if you want a giggle, go to the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust on Twitter or online 
and look at what they're putting on. It never ends. Uh, the yes. next thing is a three-year celebration of women in Shakespeare's life. It's a cash cow. Yeah. And I'm calling you out for that because what you do is you rinse people for money and what you give them is a very partial view of history and I think that's morally suspect. Ironically, what we are accused of doing. Uh, yes, indeed. We are making no money from this whatsoever. Yeah, if you could see the room we're in making yeah. this recording, you would not tell us we're making money from this. I mean... Look at this room. It's... Yeah, we, we've both come into work to do this, by the way, and and are just sitting in what is a music rehearsal room with yeah. a microphone on it, mm. on an exam desk between us. Yeah, possibly it's going to have the best acoustics of all the recordings, though, so we might have to come back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a suitably seedy little backwater. But yeah. yeah, we're not Joe Rogan. I mean, we're just not. Maybe one day. I mean, you might be. Yeah, exactly. I could be, couldn't I? Yeah. So I'm kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm not, I'm not angry and muscular enough, but I'm, well, I'm angry enough. Um, right, point four. It's going to be five points, this, isn't it? Let's face it. We'll be lucky to get the end of four. Right, I'm going to go for four then. Okay, so, like Hamlet, air writes, pages 21-2, <clears throat> it was becoming obvious to those around him that Edward de Vere was not suited to the discipline of a career at court. De Vere's detractors seem to be describing what we might today call a free spirit, someone impatient of restrictions and determined to go his own way. And if you think about Claudius's complaints about Hamlet in Act 1 in the court scenes, that's exactly what you've got. You've got a young, hot-headed, rebellious guy. Now, an objection you might have already formed is, but Hamlet's 30 in the play. That's what Yorick tells us. Well, he's still an angry young man. Um, I mean, I, I... He doesn't act 30. He doesn't, he doesn't act 30, much. no. He, he acts, I imagine, the way a courtier like De Vere would have acted, if not, um, you know, as De Vere acted. I think, I think that is definitely something... Very, very compelling. And this is the problem for Stratfordians. There is nothing in the Shakespeare biography that takes you to the plays or the plays back to the biography. Well, they claim Hamnet, um, oh, the, the dead son, don't they? Oh, God. Well, I've got two points on that. Um, Hamnet was the name of a local um, gentleman known to Anne Hathaway, uh, nay Hathaway, Anne Shakespeare and, and, and William Shakespeare. Um, and as I understand it, they, they called their son Hamnet after this other couple's uh, yeah. name. Um, I've got a friend in uh, New Jersey, uh, Terry, you know Terry, everyone knows Terry, mm. and he called his daughter Emma, that happens to be my wife's name. Um, right, well that's a nice and fitting tribute, but that's not where the name Hamlet comes from. The, 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 the name comes from Hamlet, and it comes from the source text for the play, which yeah. is by the dead Danish guy, Saxo Grammaticus. Right, and it means mad. Hamlet, isn't it? It's Hamlet, or Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah, however, yeah. You, it's a, a yeah, it's Hamlet with no H. H at the end. Anglicised to Hamlet. So, if you were giving a tribute to your son who died when he was what eleven or something, if your son died, would you portray him as a mad prince who kills people in a tragedy? Suicidal prince. Yeah, I mean, if that's what you want to think, go right ahead. But you're telling me, you know. Something about the mind of Shakespeare that, you know, E. Dover Wilson, S.T. Coleridge and Harold Bloom didn't know. Uh, I, I think that's, that, that gets a 10 on the BS scale for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not buying that one at all. No. This, that play is not a, um, some no. kind of dirge for no. his, his deceased son. And, and just to leap in and be annoying again, but this is the thing I hear about Macbeth constantly, that this is some kind of suck-up job to the new monarch. That's why we know it was written in 1606. Well, we know when it was published, we know when it went to the Stationers Guild, or whatever it is, the, the, uh, the Lord Chamberlain and, and all the rest of it, but we don't know when Macbeth was written. But even if it were produced in 1606, after the gunpowder plot, 
in what sense would it be good for your career to <laughs> produce a play in which the Scottish King and James I of England was King of Scotland uh, gets killed? I mean, in what sense would that be good? Oh, but he was related distantly to Banquo. Oh, that's all right then. We shank Duncan. Banquo, who is mentioned in the source text. Yes. This isn't this isn't some one of some addition that has been made no, by no, someone. No. And, and obviously, Oxford knew uh, Hollinshead, Raphael Hollinshead. They they yeah. were known to one another. Just thought I'd mention that because Shakespeare. Bloody we well, we didn't do know. have evidence regarding the timing of the the production of Macbeth, which we'll come back to in a later episode. We do. We've got some juicy goss on that, but it yeah. wasn't known to the world until 1623. So if you want to claim it was written in 1606, we're gonna have to see your evidence. Yeah. Um, I'll do point five, and then I'll probably I'll shut up. Um, <clears throat> well, it's just this simple point that De Vere was married off to Anne Cecil eight months after he came into his inheritance in 1571, and the marriage was a disaster. De Vere was estranged from his wife and daughter for several years. This is because he thought he'd been cuckolded whilst abroad, I think in Italy. Yep. Um, and if you think about Hamlet and Ophelia, they have a dysfunctional sexual-ish relationship involving references to nunneries and cocks and God knows what country else. Country matters. Country matters and swiving and lying yep. in maidens' laps. I would call that a fairly messed up relationship. I don't think anyone's ever called it regular. Uh, I think everyone's keen to talk about misogyny, fine, but uh, why? You know, why? Well, maybe because Ophelia was Anne Cecil, Hamlet was De Vere, and Polonius was William Cecil. It's just a messed up family drama, which is what Freud called it. Yeah, no, I have to agree. It's, it's very difficult to place any of Hamlet's... And, and Hamlet is an amazing play. Mm. You know, we, we, we love Hamlet. We Super. think it's fantastic. Brilliantly performed and fantastic to read as well. Um, and yet, yeah, it's very difficult to see any of that appearing in the life of Willem Shakespeare, Gent. Of well, if, if you were a plebeian provincial malt merchant, and you can have that as an indie band name, <clears throat> how would you get away with satirising uh, William Cecil, one of the senior ministers of the realm of um, England's monarch? How would you get away with it? How would you get away with it? Well, you might if you were an earl at court. Mm -hmm. Right, so we're going to call that for that. This will be a part one. We're going to carry straight on and record part two in a minute, so there'll be more to come in the near future. Keep on listening. Um, email us, much ado about the AQ at gmail.com. Tweet at us. I'm at God of Chicken, and Christian is at AQ Anon and then to numbers, which I said at the beginning. So a AQ underscore Anon on Twitter. And, and can I just finish by apologising for being so ratty today? Uh, it's very hot. Yeah, it's a very warm one that we're recording in this tiny, tiny room, the two of us. Mm. Uh, we're two very sweaty gentlemen. Yep. So on that note, uh, have a good one, and we'll speak to you soon. Anon and farewell. <laughs>